Kia ora Territory 3 community. It's great to have you here on a Wednesday for a change instead of a Thursday. Uh, really appreciate your time and very excited to have with me today Wayne Norrie. And Wayne's going to do a little bit of an intro uh, of all the things he's been involved in over the years. We were just reflecting on when I first met him and it's, yeah, it's got to be, well, probably we won't disclose, Wayne, how many years ago, but um, great to have you here, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so as you know, uh, the, the format is really about you, uh, the community watching this. Um, so we have question and answer session uh, functionality on Zoom. You can you can ask a question there and we will stop at about 30 minutes to make sure we get through those questions. And again, about 10 minutes before the time. Um, and uh, yeah, big shout out to our sponsors, uh, AWS, Bank of New Zealand, New Zealand Trade of Enterprise. So without them, we couldn't uh, be here today. And um, Wayne, it would be great to... Um, to have you maybe give us a little bit of intro of what you've been up to over the last few decades. Well, yeah, thank you, John, and uh, Maureen, everybody, Kia Koto. The, um, I suppose, uh, the quick flyby for my own career, I suppose, is um, <laughs> dropped out of school at an early age and went off to Canada to be a ski bum, and then I had a wise uncle, Doug. I think everyone should uh, have a wise uncle. I don't think we leverage our elders enough, to be honest. Who uh, This is in the mid-70s said, get into computers, all the, the futurism in computers. So at a very early age, um, you know, 45 odd years ago, uh, sort of got into that, did a computer science degree and then just wandered around the world, actually just doing a lot of contracting, did some really cool projects, actually put in New Zealand's first ATM and FPOS system and then did a global container tracking system with General Electric with four satellites. So here I was at a, you know, early age coding satellites and tracking 70% of the world's containers. And then got back to New Zealand and was working for Hitachi Data Systems and had this sort of epiphany. You know, I truly believe that when we have a vision, uh, that's when the best companies are, are born, really. And, and the vision was we were selling mainframe computers and mainframe storage systems. And after Y2K and anyone had spent their hardware for five years, um, no one was buying them in New Zealand. And uh, they were going to shut us down and run it out of Sydney. And, and I just suddenly thought, instead of taking the computer to the customer who can't really afford it, why don't we bring lots of customers to the computer uh, and just share it? Um, and the functionality of those top-end systems were, were brilliant to be multi-tenanted. So that was, you know, what we now call cloud. And um, I just sort of bet the bank on saying, we can do this and created Rivera, which basically became a big chunk of New Zealand cloud. And after an 11-year sprint, ran out of puff and ran out of balance sheet and ran out of money and, um, and Spark came along and waved a big check. So... Me and my business partner said, yep, that'll do. And um, and then you enter that give back phase. I think we all do. So, you know, you give back in a way where you can help those who are coming behind you. And that's through investment, through mentoring, through beachheads initially to, to, to share those lessons and then NZT board and doing some speaking and those sorts of things. So, And that allowed me to live back in sunny Hawke's Bay where I was born and my wife was born. And now we look after our elderly parents. So, uh, and it's kind of like full circle, I guess. Very cool, very cool. And the background uh, has been already commented on in the in the notes. Now that's obviously not the Hawks Bay, is it? <laughs> no, no, not the Hawks Bay on a cold day. No, we. Um, I had the privilege of uh, going down south this year. So that's out of Wanaka. We did some skiing, and um, one of my dream bucket list things was to go heli skiing with my son. So that's a heli skiing day we had pretty much above the Minaret Station, the Minaret Ranges, I think they call it. So yeah, we had a, a magic day down there. So the south still has it. Very cool, very cool. Now, you mentioned Rivera, and I'm sure a number of our founders um, have not been familiar with that story. Um, and I certainly watched uh, your team uh, drive through, you know, the ups and downs of essentially building a business. You know, quite an interesting starting point coming and approaching, you know, the HDS side and then moving that corporate out to one side and starting your own thing. 11 years, I think that's always, the, you know, the 11-year overnight success um, or seven years or whatever it is. What are your, you know, when you when you think back to, to putting your founder hat on and, and, and working that idea through to an exit with Spark, what, what are the reflections, I guess, in terms of the positives and negatives that you'd share with us today about building a business like that? Yeah, well, there's probably a couple of key things is, is, is first of all, really understand the why, right? Because when I when I sort of saw that opportunity, the, the what you have to give up to chase that dream is enormous. And if you don't understand your why, you know, between you and anything worth achieving, there's a lot of obstacles and a lot of hurdles. Uh, and you've got to gather a group of people to help you get there. And when you hit some of those hurdles, it's really easy to, to give up or, or pass on. You know, so I, I always say the difference between a successful entrepreneur and a, 
and a failed entrepreneur is a successful entrepreneur gets up one last time. You know, it's it's not that there's an easy road anywhere. So we embarked on pretty much which was which was a, a pretty much a dream. And you know, you have to mortgage everything. You know, your your kids, your dog, your parents, your everything that you can touch, um, and head off on this journey really. And and it was pretty hard. I mean, we we pretty much nearly lost the company three times. Um, and we had people around us who could, you know, save us. And and that's where I truly believe in a good board because, you know, without a good board, um, you know, we definitely wouldn't have had the end that we had. It would have been a, a terrible end. Um, but there was, and so, you know, for me, the why was actually around personal leadership. You know, I happened to, you know, my mother died of lung cancer and we were all there when she passed. And her, literally her last words were, be all that you can be. And when I said to my wife, we're going to risk everything, do this, you know, her view was, well, why? You know, it wasn't money or fame or fortune because, you know, the, the sad thing is when you're in the tech sector, you get paid quite well. And, and it's sad in that it's easy to stay inside your comfort cave. Mm. And you can only realize your full potential when you go outside your comfort cave. And I thought the rocking chair test for me was that I couldn't live with myself. If I was too scared to try to see what I could see was, you know, uh, logical opportunity so she on the start line said something very wise and very clever she says if this works um you must never say i told you so and if this fails i will never say i told you so uh and so you know three quarters of the way along one day i came back and i said kath i've tried everything it's all up you know we're going to lose the house the cars everything next week um there was no way we could make ends meet and uh, actually a funny story she she next day she came back with all these new clothes. And I said, what are you doing? You know, we couldn't pay the mortgage. We hadn't paid it in months. Couldn't pay any bills. And um, and she says, I've worked out that next week, the bank are going to take my house and the bank are going to take my car, but I'm going to walk out of here well-dressed with my head up high. <laughs> <laughs> Everything on red, <laughs> eh? Everything on red, yeah. So. And then that's the benefit of a good board. You know, one of our directors, um, you know, he sort of came out of the blue with, with literally no backing. We had no more equity to share or give and, and he just put in a, in a pot of cash that got us through that last dip uh, and got us through that last little hurdle, you know. So, um, you know, they spent a lot of time uh, helping us get through that. And then ultimately, uh, it logically came together. You know, we made the government panel and then, and a lot of people said, well, how did such a small company outperform all the big guys who were getting into, into cloud? And largely it was, I think, because we had a clean sheet of paper and a fresh perspective. And mm -hmm. I think legacy can sometimes be an anchor. Um, because all the big players like, you know, IBM and EDS and Unisys and Fujitsu and even HP, they all had data centers that was a shared building, but with customer equipment inside it. And it was hard to take customer equipment and share it because they didn't really own it. Um, whereas we built ours shared from day one. So we built a bus. We designed and built a bus to be shared, and they tried to bolt together a fleet of taxis. Uh, and that was always clunky and it was always inefficient. Um, and, you know, when we started winning all our deals uh, on the government panel, in fact, we, we thought we'd win, you know, if we won 1% of them, because it was just us, Datacom and IBM initially on the government panel. And, you know, and then we started winning a few. And then I thought, well, maybe we won a three, we could win a third. And then after the first 30 deals, I think the score was Rivera 27, Datacom 3 and IBM 0. So Spark said, well, we better take you out. And, and that's kind of what happened, really. So. Um, it was scary, so a couple of key lessons. Understand the why. Um, mm. get, 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 get a good board around you. I'm absolute believer in that. You know, one of the lessons we commonly see through NZTE is, is the lack of people who can shine light on the future. Uh, there's also just a lot of people who read the dashboard that you're reading. Um, and mobilize the team. You know, you've got to have people help you get there. And we went in our first year of Rivera, we went from the bottom of the best places the work survey to the top inside 12 months. And it was our culture, I believe, that got us there. So clear strategy, understand how hard you're going to go through these obstacles and get the most out of your people. Um, Fantastic uh, advice there, Wayne. And it's sort of um, a nice segue into Online Republic, which um, which you were on, I think you chaired that? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so again, a great exit story that you know a lot of our founders who are a bit younger than us might not be familiar with. Um, but just bringing into play, you know, a, a little reflection on that as well as the director role, because I think you raised something really important, you know, with two dimensions. One is, you know, there's founders looking uh, looking at this webinar today from their seat, but they also generally have a director seat as well. So um, 
you move to online republic director role you know um, sort of flipping from the from the Rivera side of things what what are your thoughts and reflections at a, at a governance level on that yeah and that was that was and, and and I've seen several like this as well you sort of you come along when you know it was all shareholder directors um, and you know they were all tired and they all wanted some money off the table and and they were probably about to settle for something that was pretty suboptimal to be honest um, and they were you know help us get this this deal across the line and, and I, by the time I got to understand the company I said you know it's 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 worth way more than this you know we yeah, you know are you prepared to give it a you know another another lap so to speak um, so we did a few things we, we we tightened up the strategy we got in a new CEO we got in a new CFO and that was key actually I've done that several times now often the owner manager is the CEO and they're tired and they just want to get some money off the table and get out um, I think you can do that without selling all of it. You know, I'm a great believer to say, if you're tired, bring someone else fresh in and bring some money in to allow you to get some money off the table and de-risk it. But you know, don't, don't get out too early just because you're tired and sick of it. Um, and so we did another lap. And then three years later, we sold it for about twice what they were going to settle for, uh, you know, sort of three years earlier. So that's the, the benefit of fresh eyes, fresh perspective, you know, some outside in thinking. Um, and and moving away from it's kind of a race and you hold your breath for as long as you can and when you run out of breath you sell you know i, I actually think um you know you should you can bring somebody else in uh, you can get some money off the table and just go a bit further i think sometimes we sell a little bit too early yeah yeah that's really interesting and i'm sort of sitting here thinking of my own experience of sort of Thinking about that CEO founder role and then went to went to flip. I mean, what what, what are the what are the insights or the the indicators? You know, from your perspective, um, with a lot of founders probably thinking about the same same sort of journey. You know, to, to say, you know, it's time to hand over to someone someone fresher or you know, as you say, with different eyes from a CEO point of view. Yeah, I think the first thing is well, the first thing is realizing that you can. Uh, you know, there's there's two other companies where I've, I've, I've done this now, you know, sort of joined a board of a company and and initially I said no and then, you know, why not? And I said, oh, because it's a, it's, a, it's a nice family-friendly company. You know, it's your playpen. It's your company. You're the boss. It's all built around you. Mm. I says, I can't add a lot of value to that, but it, there's opportunity costs there. You know, if you, if you want it to be a more serious company, then I can help you. Um, and it was about three years later, he came along and said, yeah, I'm ready for it to be a more serious company. You know? And I said, okay, well, sort of two conditions. He says, what's that? He says, well, yeah, yeah, you know, we can't just keep peeling all the money out in dividends. If you're going to grow, you need cash. And, um, and what's the second condition? I says, well, you're not the CEO. You know? Often the owner founder is not the best CEO. Um, and so we transitioned that. And again, three years later, that company's doubled in size. Um, so you know, they sort of get their wealth as well. I think... It's realizing that because you had the vision to start the company, very few people can take it from zero to hero. Um, you just got to understand that between zero and hero, there's probably three CEOs, not one. So the first thing is let your ego accept that, right? Because there's the sense of, you know, I should be capable. Um, the other is to realize that no matter what, everybody gets tired and every wood for the trees, you just suddenly can't see things anymore. And, um, you know, it's just not the same. So, the risk of getting in a new CEO scares people. And they say, oh, you know, can I find a pilot who's better than me? Or can I find someone who run it better than me? You can de-risk that. But again, use some outside people to help you with that. Never do that on your own. Um, and, then, and then thirdly, work out as an owner. You know, one of the things I do is I go down, you know, what's your perfect job? You know, put down on a sheet of paper all the things you love doing and the, all the things you don't like doing. And I'd almost guarantee that 50% of their job is the things they don't like doing. And that is an anchor on the company. When you take the owner manager or owner founder and you put them into a job description that is only the things they love doing, the benefit and the boost to that company is huge. And find someone else to do the other stuff. You've earned the right to do that. You've earned the right to do the job you want to do, not the job you have to do. So be really conscious uh, of letting go of the stuff you don't like doing because by definition, you will not be good at it and it will not get done properly. Um, and then that liberates you to be excited again and that mm -hmm. gives you enough time for another lap. Very cool, very cool. And I sort of boil that back and, and you know, the word aspiration comes to my mind in terms of 
you know, your point around uh, founder aspiration, you know, what do they really want this company to be and setting that really high. But then uh, I think it takes us quite nicely into going global because uh, you know, we are a small market in a small country. Um, the NZT journey, in fact, I think that's where I first met you, uh, presenting as a fresh-faced young founder in a, in a little company called Sonar6. In fact, I think it was called TMS at that time. We hadn't even named it properly. And, and, and you were... Um, you were leading up a really cool initiative, which is still going to this day around NZTE, helping people go global. Love to hear some reflections on that. Yeah, that was the that was the Beachheads program, which does still run today. But very similar to Territory Three, you're explaining the different phases of Territory Three. Beachheads has sort of gone through three similar uh, evolutions. In the early days, it was just you know it was like the landing pad, really. It was just an address, shared phone, desk, that sort of stuff, in London and New York and all these expensive places. Uh, and then it moved from there to, you know, that's a marginal value add to opening up networks. You know, so when you land in a new geography, open up networks. Um, and then what we found with that was that we'd open up these networks, but the networks were being damaged because these companies had some serious issues and probably they needed to solve those issues before they left home. So, yeah. so the next phase was, well, how do we help you, you know, how do we help go overseas and pack correctly and be ready for, for what's happening overseas? So, um, that was coupled with an awareness by NZTE that, you know, people who have done it are critical to this. So the Beachheads program is filled with private sector folk who have done it before, got the scars on their back, and are in that giving back phase, right, because they do it for, for the give back reasons. And so the Beachheads program really was, you know, help you get ready to go and not make, you know, the top six mistakes. Because after doing, I don't know, hundreds of beachhead sessions, I sort of wrote a speech, which was, you know, just about every company in New Zealand makes the same six mistakes when they go overseas. And I just thought, for a small country, this is silly, you know, to take advantage of our size, let's just recycle these mistakes and recycle how to avoid them. Um, so that when they go overseas, we, we maximize their chance to hit the ground running. Uh, and then they still have the, you know, in market networks, in market mentoring, um, and help you accelerate your growth once you land. So that's kind of the aim of it, and it's 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 there's a program that that it still is high, very highly rated, so working well. Yeah, it is very cool, and you know, say so a number of my companies, um, and I know a number of Territory Three uh, members have used uh, Beachheads very successfully um, to their advantage going global. So, so sort of uh, bringing more of the pithy nature of, of the way I like to run these webinars. You know, you've been involved in that, and it's and it's gone through these iterations. What's the What's the aspect that's frustrated you the most that uh, you couldn't address or has taken longer than you would have liked? Um, it's really hard for people to accept advice without having had learned the lessons personally. Um, you know, we, we can see companies from the side and it's it, it feels brutally obvious what's what's going wrong, but for whatever reason, um, they just don't want to listen. Um, so, you know, success is a two-edged sword. Success means I have made some decisions in the past and I've been right, and it's easy to extrapolate that into the future. Um, so that's uh, that's probably sort of been one of the frustrations. The other part was was getting, uh, you know, if I'm honest, in the early days, NZT struggled to accept or be able to align and mobilise private sector people. Uh, that was quite a struggle for a public sector organisation to partner and align private sector people. Mm. Um, and we had some we had some challenges around that in the early days, and, and you know we had all these wonderful people who just were literally on the bench. Um, they couldn't they couldn't get you know customers to talk to. Um, and I suppose the other part was was um, getting beachhead advisors there for the right reasons. Um, you know we had a spell where people were there to. You know, you know, I wouldn't say expand their networks, get some clients for their own day job sort of thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's got to be, it's got to be for the right reasons with the right experience. And then you've got to do the matching, you know, because not everyone is good for everyone. So you've got to be able to do the matching and those sorts of things. Um, but largely the biggest frustration was just seeing the same mistakes being made time and time and time again. And it, it just, you know, I think it's where I lost my hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you you highlight something too. I mean, you know, so it's the lessons learned, but it's like the learning mindset that is uh, because you know we 
we all have, uh, especially if we, we set big goals, we all have an aversion to being told that something's not quite, uh, you know, as we see it. What, what would be your tips about sort of um, getting into that frame of mind based on the folks that you've seen in so many of these sessions and, and the ones that have perhaps started, you know, clearly with an aversion to, to taking on that learning mindset but have, have adapted and, and sort of moved themselves into that space quite successfully? Yeah, I, I, you know, I personally think it's, it's a lot of it's around personal leadership, you know, uh, and a lot of it is around putting your own ego to one side. Um, it's a it's a it's a lifelong journey. We're all on it, um, but you know the lowest ego folk uh, took on some strong lessons and went the furthest. The highest ego folk just sort of shunned it all and had to learn the hard way. Um, mm. So I think it's there's there's a lot of there's a lot of self development that needs to happen in parallel to these things. Um, and and almost you could say if if you're not going to take on advice, don't seek it. Because um, mm. you're just wasting the time for the those folk that are giving it, you know. Uh, and if you are going to seek advice, then be prepared to act on it. Be, be prepared to, to. But again, you do have to analyse. You know, I always say beware of the financial advice from the financial advisor who lives in a caravan. Um, yeah. <laughs> the source of that advice is important as well. <laughs> I think the average salary of a financial advisor I read somewhere was about fifty-five thousand dollars a year. So. Which makes no sense, does it? I mean, it's. <laughs> It's not a good look. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and we've got a comment here from Mark, and I know there's a couple of questions as well, which we'll get to in, in a few minutes. But um, thanks, Mark. It's um, it's a good one. So, you know, um, board members, um, you know, what are the characteristics you're looking for? It says, it says what would be your top three board members. I think that possibly is who, who, who they would be. But sort of um, maybe driving that to a more general side of things, you know, what characteristics do, do you look for uh, in bringing some people, particularly in that scenario where you're talking about a, a sort of a shareholder founder lead board and it's the first few people, you know, what are the characteristics that you think are going to set that up for the most likely success? That's a really, really good question. Um, for me, it's just if, if you if you move your model of governance from sort of, you know, compliance and keeping you on track to, you know, the analogy I use, it's like when, you, when you're running your business, it's like driving a car flat out through the desert at night and you've got these weak little headlights into the future, but you've got this really bright dashboard that you can see easily. And, and a board is not about reading the dashboard and telling you how to drive your car. That just drives you nuts. You know, the board is about having a set of floodlights on the roof of the car to illuminate the holes so that you can steer around them into the future. So... Boards can only add value into the future. They can't add value inside the cab. So the first thing is you've got to get the folk who have some experience of that future, um, you know, so that they can illuminate it. And that's where they want to play. Um, they're not about command and control. And so, you know, I have three easy questions for whether someone's got a good board or not. Um, one is uh, how often do they meet? And if they meet monthly, you know, why do boards meet monthly? I mean, that's changed a lot now, but that's because numbers come out monthly. I still don't understand why numbers come out monthly. Something to do with phases of the moon. I've never understood that. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> and then, um, and all you do if you meet monthly is you do page turns on the on the numbers and the CFO report and the CEO report, which is all about the past, right? So, so separate from the numbers. And then, um, have you got any independent directors? Because often it's suppliers and shareholders. So, you know, you've got to have that independence. You've got to have those right people. Uh, you can play in the future. They don't have to know about your business. Um, New Zealand is really great at building products and services to take to the world. They're very poor at designing the company that will take those products and services to the world. And mm. boards will help you shape your company that will take your product and service to the world. They don't have to be experts in your product or service. Um, so that's sort of something to understand as well. And, and make sure that each you know, director brings something unique that you need. So whether you need, you know, operating in global markets, whether you need, you know, fundraising or, you know, capital raising out in your future, whether you need, you know, uh, leadership or culture types, you know, advice or guidance or whether it's sales, you know, advice or guidance. So make sure that, you know, that um, if you take knowledge as a 360 degree circle, no matter how good you are, you, you only know about a quarter of that. And then yeah. there's, a, there's another section of that you know that you don't know. But two-thirds is what you don't know that you don't know. 
and your board is designed to shed light on that part of the circle that you don't know, that you don't know. Um, if they're in the same circle as the stuff that you know, it's just frustrating and annoying. Mm. So design your board first and then seek what you want, exactly as you would hiring a person. You know, you work out what you need, you write it all down, and then you go and try and find that person. It's the same with directors, no different. Yeah, great. And um, Robert uh, has a question, go Robert, um, around, you know, where you find CEOs. Um, so I guess, you know, reflecting on the board sort of obligations, um, hiring and firing the CEO and, and, you know, always acting in the best interest of the company. But it all sort of sounds great, but you know the CEO role—it's it's a challenging one, especially in some of these innovative, fast-moving companies. What are your thoughts on on where you sort of go looking for someone to replace yourself or to to be? Yeah, no, that, that is it is tough. There's no doubt. Um, uh, uh, the, the first thing is don't try and do it DIY. Um, for some reason, you know, in New Zealand, New Zealand's a village, and we know everyone, and we're tempted to just use our own networks and our networks networks, but. I'm a great believer of get a professional and come and help you find a CEO. And there's lots of people who specialize in it. And one of the things they'll do is they will really crisp up on what you're looking for and why, um, you know, are you looking for, are you looking for, you know, something that's going to grow at tenfold? Are you looking for something that's going to hold the fort and be low risk and, and, and really analyze what you're looking for and why. And then they have much broader networks, you know, even to the point where they go shoulder tapping if it's not in their pool. So the larger the pond that you go fishing in, the more likely you are to find the right fish. Uh, and your own personal network is usually quite small in comparison. So there are professionals who help you do this. And, you know, if you've never hired a CEO or hired a CEO successfully, admit that you're not very good at it, find someone who has, you know, and let professionals help you. Yes, there's a cost to it, but the cost of getting it wrong is is ginormous. So it's you know it's cheap by comparison. Yeah, hundred percent. Another question here, Wayne, uh, from Stephen Westwood. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for switching it over from the chat to the question. Beautiful. Um, and it's you know what are some of the mistakes that Kiwi tech companies keep making when they go international? Yeah, the the yeah the toxic. So the first is is that governance one. Um, they usually don't have the right board for that. Um, you're going international, and by definition, you're probably going into an area you've never been before, you've never played before. Uh, and what is it when you go fishing in a strange spot, you know, and you've never been there before? When you're down on the pier putting your boat and you talk to the local fishermen, right? So why wouldn't you have a director in the territory you go hunting in? Why, you know, they know the rules of the road. They know how it all works. So why do we have New Zealand directors on companies that go overseas? I've never quite, you know, understood that. Unless they've come back or have those experiences, so that always helps. But getting, getting the right board around you as well. Another key one is we can, we can operate pretty well here with a, what I'd call a slightly broad strategy. But large, mature markets, you know, they can be tough. They can be competitive. There's no easy wins. And to get cut through, you've got to have a laser-like strategy. You know, so a broad strategy will not get you there, either on your target market or the value proposition you're taking to that market. So you've really got to hone up what your value proposition is and get it very, very narrow, very, very sharp, and then you will get great cut through. Uh, and sometimes that's trimming your market. You know, we had one company that was going to the UK, to London. They thought that was narrow. Financial sector in London. And, you know, and the local guy said, no, nah, that's too broad. Come back. And they said, okay, we're going to do insurance companies in London. They said, no. And they ended up selecting university registries and they just got all an awesome cut through because I actually think we forget you know, you know, the great lesson around tipping point. So if you pick a, a market and narrow it as much as you can, you know, when you reach 14 to 16% market share, suddenly the customers come to you. Uh, and too often Kiwi companies, you know, don't reach that tipping point. And then they go somewhere else because there's some low hanging fruit somewhere else, you know. And we end up being a mile wide and an inch deep, as we all like to say. So, mm. um, you know, I think no, that's absolutely key one as well. I mean, there's certainly others, um, you know, the go-to-market model. You know, we don't do enough market validation and work out how to penetrate that market, whether it's directly or through distributors or through, uh, you know, which geography we're in as well. So NZT have really good market validation funding to help you get really narrow and really tight on that. And if you get that right, you vastly increase your chances of getting the rest right. Yeah, I sort of feel like um, the resources from what I've heard when they have been engaged in NGT and, and just the fact they're right across the globe are still underutilised. Do you, you have any perspective on that? I, um, I would agree with that. Um, one of the things we've been really struggling with, it's interesting, for the, you know, the, the NPS of the customers we play with is really high, 
Um, and we do play with a lot of customers. We tend to play with smaller companies. I don't know if, 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 if people think we play with big customers only, but we actually play with, with quite small companies. Um, and one of the things we've been putting a lot of effort into is this recycling of lessons learned. And we've realized that there's only limited capacity to do that one-on-one. So they've put enormous effort into digitizing all of these lessons uh, and making them available to everyone. And that's through a thing called MyNZTE. And so MyNZTE is just a knowledge bank of 30 years of lessons learned. Uh, and, and we focus really hard on being really specific about lessons learned. You know, for instance, someone says, oh, it took me longer to get, um, you know, uh, authority for my product than I thought. Well, well, that's not a lesson. You know, did it take six months or six years, you know, or firing, finding someone was harder than I thought, you know, well, what was the lesson there? How did you find someone? What did you have to pay? Um, so we're trying to get really specific about the lessons learned, but um, it's now widely available to almost everybody. And the number of users we got on MindZTA is really low. So there's a, a bank of gold in there that is freely available. Uh, and, you know, we're struggling to attract people to it. Yeah, totally. And if I can sort of throw in some, some knowledge with us, you know, um, and being in partnership with NZT for 11 years now with uh, with Territory 3, I think uh, a lot of founders, you know, very quick to sort of point the finger about not getting value, but they haven't actually done the prep or the work uh, with a lot of those resources before they actually engage uh, with, uh, you know, with the people. And, um, yeah, you can only help people who are well prepared, right? Yeah. Yeah, and and well, and to be honest, it's it's the unprepared ones too that are, they're uh, you know we'd like to help the most. Really, it's <laughs> you know we we I mean I just think that as a nation you know we sort of punch above our weight. But the one thing we have to do is recycle the lessons so that more of us do that. Yeah, totally, totally. Josh Ford, g'day, Josh. Here's a question about oh, this is a good, this is a doozy. How how can you find support for developing commercial skills within your people and systematizing that? Business development feels hard to source within New Zealand. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a key thing. So if um, I guess it depends on whether you're business development in New Zealand for New Zealand or business development overseas, right? So I'll I'll, I'll speak to the overseas part. Um, mm. One of the things that when you go overseas is one of the things you can't do is operate the way we do in New Zealand. That's probably another common mistake. You know, like it's it's quite easy. Uh, to sell stuff in New Zealand because it's a village, there's only two degrees of separation. So we all have a direct model. You know, very few people use you know an indirect model in New Zealand because the market's so small. But when you go overseas, you kind of don't have that time to develop those relationships. At the end of the day, you've got to remember that business is always about relationships. Um, first a relationship, then they have a need, then you have a solution. And you know, that's still the basics. So to fast track those relationships, you use a, you know, an indirect model. And, and a lot of the time, you know, we select the wrong people on that indirect model. Um, so you'll, you'll find a, a partner who likes your goods and we sign them all up and we come back to New Zealand and we wait for the orders to come, but they just don't come through because, you know, we don't understand how that partner's incenting their salespeople. You know, if there's not enough margin in it, they ain't going to sell it. Or if your product is one of 100 products, they ain't going to sell it. Mm. Or, you know, they say they own this market um, when it, and everyone says that, you know, one of the things I always like to say is go and talk to your prospective customers and say, if you were to buy my product or service, who would you buy it from? Yeah. Get the customer's view, not the, not the uh, indirect agency's view. Um, and of course, they get frustrated with that. So then they say, okay, I'm going to have a direct model. I'm going to have my own salespeople. And we turn up in market and we try and hire the best salesperson. But actually, instead of hiring the king, we can't afford that. So, you know, we think, well, I can't hire afford the king. I'll hire the prince, but what we don't know is that, you know, everyone local knows it's the court jester, you know, so we hire a bad salesperson who blames everything else, blames the product, the exchange rates, the competition, the market, the whatever. Five or six years goes by and you've just lost a whole lot of money and sometimes you cripple the parent company. So, mm. again, I'm, I'm a great believer of, of, you know, work out what your model is and NDT offers a lot of help on that. And if it's an indirect model, get really clear about how to choose one because often we aren't experienced in it because in New Zealand we haven't had to do it. Um, so it's not it's not as straightforward as people think. Or if you are going to have a direct model, again, I highly advise of get local outside and advice. Uh, Beachhead's program is good for that, and local outside and uh, recruitment folk. So spend more upfront to get the right person. Um, too often, 
we hired the wrong person because it's all we can afford. You're better off not hiring them at all. Um, so use professionals uh, both to help you select and find. 100%. And that sort of um, uh, brings us, I think, to the fuel question, you know, in terms of doing these things badly or hiring someone and then running out of fuel. So the big, uh, the big investment question. I mean, you've raised uh, a bunch of money directly and indirectly over the years. Um, the 101 of investment, you know, maybe maybe the, the top three things to do and top three things not to do. How do you think about that as a, as a founder in reflection? Yeah, the, um, when I first went and raised money, uh, I had my lens on, rather the investor's lens on. Um, and I could see what was obvious, but Others can't see it. In fact, they're looking for different things. They're looking for, you know, um, what do I get back? How capable are you of delivering that? Um, you know, how real is the need and how good is the solution? You know, can you reach it? Um, so I'm a great believer that when you, if you have a good company and a good opportunity and you package it right, there's always been money. You know, if you talk to, if you talk to companies saying, oh, there's not enough money around, I can't raise capital. And then you talk to all the investors and say, there's not enough opportunities around, got plenty of money to spend. You say, well, you know, what's the gap? You know, so a lot of people have helped bridge that now and, and help people with pitch decks and all those sorts of things. Um, I mean, the world's awash with money right now, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're, if you're not able to raise capital either, you're not pitching right, get some pitch help. Uh, you're telling your story incorrectly. You're telling it from your perspective or you're from your product's perspective. Investors aren't interested in products. They're interested in a business that can make a return. And so you might have the best shaped product, but if it's in the worst shaped business, it's, it's not investable. Um, and uh, so get some help around that. Or, you know, you haven't got a business that's worth investing in and, and you have to do some things to fix that up. Um, but, but either way, again, get some external perspective. I, I went in with my own perspective. I was convinced I was investable and, and struggled for a while. So, you know, there's some nice, uh, uh, what do we call it? Tough love that you've got to get around that investing path. You know? Yeah, 100%, because it's going to hit you anyway, isn't it, as you say, uh, and just not connecting the dots and getting some uh, some cash. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, get enough. Um, you know, too often there's one company I've, you know, I've invested in and, and, and she's forever coming back with, you know, it seems that she only gets enough cash to go three months and she's out there again. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, one of the things about capital raising is you take your best person almost out of play 100% with never-ending capital raise rounds. Yeah. And, you know, a key resource is on the sideline. It's like putting, you know, the captain of the team on the, on the bench. Just that hurts the team. Yeah, 100%. And that sort of brings us, um, I think, to a, a really key founder perspective, particularly over the last couple of years, um, because it's not just been in terms of stresses and struggles about uh, just raising capital, it's just been this whole shifting market, you know, both personally and professionally. So we always like to have a, a, a sort of a wellness lens on this. Um, you know, what would be your insights uh, from both sides of the table, really, founder and, and director around keeping everybody well? Yeah, again, I, I, really good question, John. Thank you. It, it, it's... For me, it's just us being honest about this. You know, we, we had a real push of this inside NZTE and one of the senior people just sort of came up in a team webinar about, you know, his, his struggles with mental wellness and his health and his challenges. And, and these things go back to, you know, often in our early days, you know, everybody knows somebody usually close to them that has had a challenge with anxiety or depression or all of these things. And it's the most untalked about subject. So the, the first step is to, to start talking about it. Right? Let's normalize it rather than it's than it's abnormal, right? Because in our society it is it is quite normal. You know, we all know our male suicide rates for teenage kids is just horrific. So mm. you know it's right. So the first question is really be create a culture around people can talk about it with no stigma. Um, you know, let's take it out of the back rooms into the front room. And, and then just you know, the obvious things around support groups to build around it. And, you know, there's external professional parties you've got to make available to people as well. But but I just think the first thing is if your work colleagues are aware, it's amazing how they will rally around and help. Um, so I think awareness is the first big step you can do. And to do that as a leader, um, you know, if it's not something that affects you, be courageous and open your heart about some other aspect that's quite personal or quite difficult to talk about. 
if you open your heart, your team will as well. Uh, if you remain closed and closeted, uh, your team will as well. Um, they will reflect how you operate. So as a leader, it's not just what we do, but it's how we do it and what we say that leads is the example for many of those who follow. So just open up and allow others to open up in a safe environment. Yeah, great, great advice. Um, yeah, bigger, a big issue, especially at the moment, well, always really. Um, moving to another question, because you've mentioned this a few times um, as we've been talking around culture and uh, David Brevner. Hey, David. Um, so you've got out and about into the world again, which is cool. Um, any insights for building our culture with new employees, with more of the team having moved to remote work during COVID? Yeah, the, the remote working is a, is a real challenge, actually. Um, and, and new employees, you know, I mean, I'll talk about the physical environment and then we've got to find ways of mirroring that in a, in a virtual environment. But I think um, most cultures, uh, the biggest cultural loss is when we employ people because we employ people only when we're flat out. And when we're flat out, we tend to just, you know, throw them in the deep end. You know, I, I, got, I got told this wonderful story. Actually, it's worth sharing. It takes a minute or two, but it's, um, you know, do you... Do you, when someone leaves, you know, do you put on drinks for them? I'm going, yeah. And the guy goes, well, I don't know about you. He says, it's your money, but they're leaving. He says, why don't you have a starting party? And he goes, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you know, and then there's a speaker in the room. He hands up everyone who has a new employee start on a Monday. You know, most of the hands go up. He goes, never start on a Monday. He says, you know, think about it because you're always busy. You're always, you know, run down. And he says, you know, it's, it's what happens when you start on a Monday is, you know, it happened to me is, you know, you got the weekend, the first thing you do on Monday morning is fire up the sales team, you know, you fire up the management team, you're, you're busy all flat out, right? So you're coming in the morning and there's the new person sitting there, you know, and they've spent their entire weekend getting ready for this. They've been nervous, might even got, you know, I'll, I'll do it as a, the, the person starting as a male, might even got a new shirt or whatever. They don't know how long the transit takes, so they generally get there early. They're sitting there in reception waiting. You know, and I go past and I'm sort of going, you know, g'day, not knowing who that is. And and then suddenly it's like, you know, you're supposed to spend time with them and you're too busy, you can't. Uh, and and their first day is pretty much a fizzy, you know. It's kind of like you just say, oh, yeah, um, just learn the names of everybody and where the toilets are and we'll get some time to get it tomorrow. So we changed all that. We just start everyone on Wednesday uh, and it's all sorted out. And when the person starts, John, you know, there's a big sign in for you, welcome, John, you know, and, and, you know, you have time with them and you've got their PC and their laptop and their sign-ons and their business cards and their phone and everything's all sorted. And you have morning tea with everybody there and you give them a bottle of champagne and, and you put a little bit of effort into the starting party and that adds to the culture. Um, so how you start people is really key. Now, it's really difficult to do virtually, but again, you could mirror a lot of that virtually, you know, ensure that everyone has got time to have a cup of tea with the new person on a, on a, you know, on a Zoom call or whatever, and just share who they are, not what they do, um, and actually talk about openly what the values of the team are, what the culture of the team is, you know, and, and we would always have a cultural interview, you know, so you have a technical interview, a fit interview, and then a cultural interview, you know, make sure that culture is, if you want a good culture, you have to talk about it. Um, and often we'll interview people thinking, they will fit into the culture without actually explaining what the culture is. You know, we sort of do the, we do the fit test uh, invisibly or silently. Um, be overt about what the culture is. And then on the first day, demonstrate what the culture is. Get others to talk about it. Um, it's That's not something... Important. I mean, it's probably more important, right, to, um, to get people zooming into new team members given they just literally don't see people in, in the physical... Yeah. yeah, exactly. They'll see... Names on emails, if you start a new job and you see a whole lot of names on emails that are your, your team, and it's meaningless to you. You know, you might you might Google them or whatever, but it, it, it just feels cold, you know? And, and, you know, I'm a great believer that if culture is important, then have meetings about culture, mm. right? Culture is, is a proactive thing, not a result of other activities. You know, a lot of people think, having a great culture is hiring the right people, or if you have a bad culture, you throw alcohol at it until it comes right. Mm. Um, you know, whereas I believe that you define it, you share it, you talk about it, you talk about how good is it? You know, how can we improve it? You know, what can we start doing that we're not doing? And what should we stop doing that we are doing? And, and is it real? Is it important? Every single person I've had these discussions with will say culture is really important. So we'll say, well, okay, 
you know, I mean, you spend eight hours a day at work with your work colleagues. You know, if you've got a young child, you know, you might get up in the morning, have breakfast with them, long day at work, get home, have dinner, put them to bed. You might only spend two or three hours with your young child, but you'll spend eight, nine, ten hours with your work colleagues. It's really mm. important time in your life. It's the bulk mm. of your life. Mm. So it's really important to make it exciting in an, in an environment where you can give in a safe place. And if you get the most out of your people, you will then get the most out of your company because we all forget that companies are only made up of people. It's not the product, it's not the buildings, it's not the data centers or the computers, it's the people. So get the most out of your company, get the most out of your people. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, and just um, just on that, because it's a bit of a bugbear of mine and you, you, know, we, you will have seen the numbers as well around productivity. So... You know, New Zealand's OECD, sure, not necessarily just the innovation sector, but, you know, whichever way you cut it, very down the ladder in terms of productivity. Um, you, know, you mentioned before, you know, what comes out, what people apply themselves to. Any thoughts on what the what the kind of base cause of that is? Um, you know, outside yeah, of at, a, at, at a national level with, you know, if you peel that onion a little bit more, at a national level, the sort of agriculture and, and tourism sort of a big, a big levers on um, you know, at a national level where um, reasonably unproductive. And then you get into manufacturing and, you know, we, we probably need more high-tech manufacturing, we need more sort of automation. Um, within the tech sector, ironically, I think our productivity is pretty good. Um, now, I haven't seen, you know, productivity numbers, but I just know that, you know, what we've, what the, the anchor on that train is, is that, you know, we can't attract our kids into uh, the tech sector you know i think that's one of our issues so we have to go looking overseas for it. in fact what's happening now is a lot of overseas companies are employing our folk for overseas jobs right? and not even relocating them you know my own son um you know he lives in Pongamatar and he, and he works for offshore companies um and a lot of that is happening as well so i think by sector you know agriculture by definition is um there's always going to be a challenge uh, tourism is challenged manufacturing um, we do have some high-tech manufacturing, but you know we've sort of got some low-tech ones as well. It's very manual, uh, very labour-oriented. You know, horticulture with apples and picking those, those sorts of things. So at a national level, we come out at, um, at a low number, but I, but I think that's because of our primary sector that brings those numbers down. I think if we separated out tech and some other sectors, uh, I think our numbers aren't too bad. Having said that, I've, I've not looked for or seen sort those numbers, um, but that's only my view. But but I just know that our tech sector is very strong and healthy. You know, I think that the view from the edge is an advantage from the view from the middle. And yeah. we get to see things differently, more clearly, um, and think about things before we jump in. You know, we, 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 we definitely have an advantage by our geography being at the edge. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective and, and, you know, food for thought around that uh, tech sector actually sort of being being on track um folks we're about 12 minutes from the finish of this it's been a fantastic um, conversation it's gone very quickly as always uh, we've got one question if you do have any other questions please fire them in uh, to us and we'll endeavor to get to them before the end of the session but uh chitrang um uh and, and i think you probably covered a few of these already thanks john away for the insightful session wayne do you have tips pointers for early stage tech startups on how to go about forming governance yeah, that's that's uh, that is difficult. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, I would go the way of an advisory board. Um, you know, one of the things you got to do with private companies and startups, obviously, is you got equity to play with. Um, but play with it carefully. Get some advice on how to play with. It. A lot of people give away too much too soon, um, and then when they reach success, there's 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 some bad blood there as well. The other side of that is that at an early stage, if you're a formal director, there's risk. Um, you know, there's there's a few directors going to court now and a lot of people struggle with that. So an advisory board is kind of the best of both worlds. You can get really good experience, um, but the directors don't carry the risk. Um, but then you've still got to make sure that you try and get the right quality. I still believe, and there's several companies that do this that specialize in appointing directors. Um, so don't just go and ask, you know, don't limit yourself to your own pool. Uh, I would actually engage uh, professional people, even at a startup level, for finding a director. You'll find there's a lot of people who will do it 
for the give back part of their life. And this is one thing to understand. All owner founders who've had some success are happy to give back. It's in the Kiwi nature. That's how the Beachheads program worked. We went around a lot of Kiwis overseas who've done really well. You know, we're the second largest country in the world to export people. Ireland's the biggest. You know, they had uh, 16 million people offshore uh, from the potato famine, and they've been doing it ever since. Um, but per capita, you know, at one stage, we're, you know, we're still about 1 million offshore, 5 million onshore. That's about 20%. Mm. And a lot of those Kiwis have gone offshore, have done really well. And when NZT went around and said, you know, would you help out? Uh, these extraordinary successful, busy people to a person said yes. Um so don't believe that there isn't anyone out there who's not willing to help you. I believe there is. But you have to find them through an intermediary, through an agency that specializes in this, and you have to structure it so that if you're really early stage, you can de-risk it. That's when an advisory board comes into play. You generally can't afford cash, so you know, put a little bit of equity in there um, without being too much and, and, and sort of strike a deal. It, it's worth its weight in gold, to be honest. Um, you don't know what you don't know. And at an early stage, you haven't got the depth or the balance sheet or the resources to make too many mistakes. Um, you know, you've got to try and avoid those potholes and steer around them rather than drive into them and try and climb out of them. Yep, adventure just with the A and the D fell off somewhere down the down the down the way. <laughs> so um, we've got a couple more questions here. Uh, Bob, go Bob. Uh, Many startups are losing staff to large corporates, yes, indeed, um, and government departments, actually, who are paying way bigger dollars. I'm a victim of this in some of my director roles um, than startups can afford. Very very interested to hear your question, uh, your answer to this one, Wayne. Any tips on how to avoid this happening? Yeah, there's well, just just three areas that's really hard. First is, first is culture. Um, big companies are often not fun to work for. You know, we found actually in Rivera, we, we you know, that, and went to the top of the best places to work survey. Uh, we found that was worth around 30000 a year in salary. You know, because people would, I would say to people, um, yeah, if you're going to leave and go to another job, do me the honor of sharing that with me because someone, you know, they're going to promise you there tomorrow. And someone else's tomorrow is always better than my yesterday. Mm. So at least allow me to put, you know, their tomorrow and my tomorrow on the table. I should have done it already, but if I haven't, allow me to put two tomorrows on the table uh, and that will equalize the playing field a little bit. And then we found that, you know, um, it was the, the culture was quite sticky because it was really good and it was worth about 30,000 a year before they would break away. Those that did break away found it was just horrible. I mean, human beings can only put up with shite for so long for more money. Mm. Uh, and then they would come back and say, you know what, it's a bit ugly out there. Um, so that's the first thing, really work hard on your culture. The other thing is, do the things that they can't do. So work on one equity. You know, I, I believe employee share options are, are really key if you're small um, and galvanize the vision and try and get some stickiness into that. And then thirdly, you lose your size as your advantage. Really understand your staff and find out what's really valuable to them. Sometimes it's just, you know, picking the kids up after school or dropping them at football, you know, and just bake a program around allowing that to happen. You know, sometimes it's, social contact and they want some mates to go and do some things with and make that happen. You know, just find out what is really important to them outside of their day job and see if you can put as much of that on the table as you can. Big companies, big government departments are getting more flexible, but they have rigor and structure and, and bureaucracy that you don't have to have. So play to your strengths. Small is better than large in a lot of areas. We just have to look at it through that lens. Yeah. Yeah, 100%, and it's, uh, and it's hard work. But um, if uh, it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, Zach, a uh, question here, good question. Thanks, Zach. Uh, what are some trends happening overseas within company governance or structures that we should be thinking about uh, implementing within New Zealand? Actually, I'll get you to repeat that. But I was just looking at, there was a, a great text from Michael Moynihan. He's the current Beachhead's chair, yeah, about don't ask people directly to join your board. Ask them if they can recommend someone be good for the board. That's a really good tip, actually. Share that yeah. one as well. Sorry, John, I was reading that as you asked the question. I oh, know, that's, that's cool and a, and a very good tip indeed. So the, the question from Zach was, what are some trends happening overseas within company governance or structures um, that we should be thinking about, in your opinion, here in New Zealand in terms of implementing? Yeah. Um, well, one of the big trends is, is and this is, 
related to structure, I suppose, in government is ESG. Um, you know, it is. I can't tell you how important it is becoming everywhere. You know, on the back of COVID and COP26, one of the things the world has realised is that we are all connected. And because of that, um, we have to work together to you know, stop the destruction of our planet. So ESG is really big now. And if you don't have a really good story to tell on that, you're going to be in trouble, even though it's not directly related to your product or service. So you have to have your own story on that. And, and I think that's going to hit really soon because consumers are now demanding it. Consumers want um, some trust around it, not just greenwashing and all those other things. Uh, so that's that's a huge trend. Um, getting the right balance of remote and physical working uh, is, you know, at, at one end, everyone in the office. I don't think we'll ever see that again. At the other end, everyone remote. That's just too hard and adds to a lot of challenges. So trying to work out where you can play in that spectrum that suits your company and your size and your age and your stage. You know? um, loneliness will overtake a great job um, often. So just be really careful about that and try and work out what those sort of structures are. So that's uh, that's a really key one. Um, in governance, it's uh, try not to have directors who are too busy. You know, people have gone for a lot of, you know, name directors. Uh, and there's a lot of people out there with 10 or 12 or whatever it is, boards. That's, that's you know, in my mind, not fair for the company. Um, if all the companies are doing well, that's fine. But when a company's not doing well, directors really climb in deep. Uh, well, they should and really help you out. So, you know, make sure that there's bandwidth uh, when you do select your directors. Uh, and again, design them properly and, and reward them as well as you can and, and and don't be afraid to change them uh, if the company's gone through a new phase or you don't have a good one. You know, a lot of people think you've got to, excuse me, a director for life. Um, directors can be hired and fired like anybody else can. So, uh, you know, kind of act on that as well. There is a big push if you're going to get US, you know, in-market capital. A lot of people say, you know, in-market capital for an in-market push. And that makes sense. Um, but in the US, you know, they don't like using US money for a New Zealand company. So you've got that challenge. Some people have got around it, uh, and NZT can point you to those companies. Uh, and some people haven't. They've created a US entity because it's much more investable. Um, and in any exit, it's it, you're going to get a better multiple because it is a US company as well. So, um, you know, go and talk to others who have done it before and, and gather those experiences. You know, if you if you find yourself facing any challenge that you haven't faced before, don't work it out yourself. Ask someone and other people who have. And NZT can easily connect you to those people. Yeah, 100%. And I'm, I'm so glad ESG was your first answer to the question, Wayne. That was, <laughs> that was the right one in my book. Oh, um, there we go. <laughs> we've got a couple of minutes to run, and you prompted me on something that I think someone like yourself needs to be asked in this um, before we wrap up, because I know it's something that I deal with with a lot of our community members you know, being challenged. And that's where, from a board point of view, one or several of your directors have just, you know, I'll cut to the chase, you know, reached their use by date. So, but they don't really see that. So, you know, walk us through your, your advice for that situation in terms of how to, how to approach it and, and, and sort of get it to the conclusion you need, which is, which is then moving on. Yeah. Well, the, well the, you know, the first approach is just, again, treat it like moving on any, any staff member that's got to use by date, right? The first approach is to have a very private one-on-one um, and just, you know, I believe that if people have got to use by date, they kind of know it. They're in some degree of pain. Mm. Um, and if they're in pain, you know, if you're in pain, they're in pain, right? Um, so try and have that big, honest discussion about this pain on both sides, you know. Second is to realize it's a relationship and a relationship has to work for both parties to be a good relationship, right? So if it's not working for you, by definition, the relationship is not working. Uh, and talk about the relationship, not the person. Because when you let someone go, you must let them go with, um, without damaging them. You know, it's just just because something's not a good fit, it does not mean it's not a good person. Uh, and so you've got, always got to bear that in mind in your discussions. If they can't see it and they're determined to stay, um, then get a formal board evaluation, uh, which is done anonymously, and the scores will come out on that person, uh, not where you would expect them to be. And then... 
I get an external person in and who who then would go around each of the directors and talk about their scores and that person would say, listen, it's not a good fit here. Uh, you know, maybe you should think about it. Um, and then finally, depending on contractually, you just have to do it with the big, big hard hammer. But but most directors want to walk away with their reputation intact and therefore they would want to leave early rather than later with damage. Um, so it would have to be a, a very poor director who clings to the cliff because they're going to come away with scars that they don't want. Um, so if I play that back, exit with honour is the, is the approach. <laughs> yep. It's been, um, been marvellous chatting to you, Wayne. It's been way too long. And uh, I know a lot of just the comments and so forth I'm already seeing here from the Territory 3 community, you've added an enormous amount of value. Uh, so thank you. Uh, it's uh, It's been great uh, talking to you. And uh, yeah, thanks from the folks. Thanks to our sponsors for making this possible. Amazon Web Services, Bank of New Zealand, New Zealand Trade Enterprise. Um, yeah, any final comments? Uh, just literally, thank you to John. Um, I believe in the power of community, the fact that a whole bunch of people are coming in and sharing lists. Uh, if New Zealand has one superpower, it's that we're small and that superpower means we can share more easily. And it's, uh, it's communities like this that are hopefully getting a lot of good advice around to more people so that we can all go off and, and be the nation and the companies we know we can be. So my final comment is thank you to everyone on the webinar and John, you for making it happen. So it's been a pleasure to chat. Pleasure, Wayne. Thanks, everybody. See you all next right. time. Cheers. Cheers.